Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. Hi, and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today, I'm here with Jacob George. Jacob is a strategic advisor and investment banker, founder of Georgian Company Investment Bank that's headquartered in New York City. With a strong global presence and experience in executing cross-border transactions, Georgian Company provides clients access to global platform to acquire companies, divest assets, or raise capital. Georgian Company has experience advising companies in the technology, software, aerospace, defense, uh, industrials, healthcare, technology, and food and beverage sectors. Welcome, and uh, thank you for being on the Joe, uh, show, Jacob. I'm, I'm really glad to have you here today. Thank you so much, sir. Really uh, appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I think I just said a, a new milestone. I think I got your name right, and I didn't butcher something in the intro. I actually got through it pretty smooth. I think there was one hiccup there, so uh, okay, I uh, I always joke around. You're getting a lot, if you're watching this, you're getting a live raw, raw and cut. I don't believe in editing anything too much. I just want to give organic conversations with people. Um, with that, let's just start with kind of your origin story. I like to joke around and say, hey, you know, you were born and then someday you ended up here with me on a mergers and acquisitions podcast. How did you end up here? You know, I uh, had an interesting path. Um, you know, my, my family, especially my dad, is very much an engineering person. Um, you know, grew up wanting to be an engineer, right? Um, and then went to a magnet school for, you know, electrical and computer engineering. Uh, and uh, somewhere, I would say sometime in high school, I was like, wow, I really don't see myself um, doing this um, for the rest of my life. I love technology. I love creating new ideas, but I don't see myself being an engineer for the rest of my life, right? And um, I, I on a whim, I said, you know what, I'm going to do pre-med. I'm going to go to med school. Um, that didn't work out so well. Um, uh, a 2.6 GPA uh, in my first year of med school. And I was like, you know what? Uh, this is probably not for me. I don't think people really want me treating them. So I says, okay, you know, I, I'll switch to finance. And, you know, the, the motivation to go into finance was really simple. Um, I liked investing in stocks, right? I, I would sit next to my dad. My dad would be, you know, working on his retirement fund. And, and I just didn't like investing into stocks. And, and it was that simple, right? That's why I went into finance. Um, had zero clue about, the different areas of finance, you know, corporate finance, investment banking, equity risk. I knew none of that at all, right? Uh, I just wanted to do stocks. And it's a, and then, you know, my brother is, who's two years uh, younger than me, he gets to college, um, goes into finance, watches a movie called Wall Street Money Never Sleeps. And he comes home and is like, man, I want to be an investment banker, right? And I was like, okay, cool. Um, you know, what does that mean? And then I remember I was doing a lot of research. And I was like, this is really, really cool, right? And um, one of the things at that point that happened was that I realized I was still very passionate about technology. And um, at the same time, I was very passionate about finance and, and deal making. And I found that M&A or investment banking was a way for me to bring both those worlds together. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I went into investment banking. Um, I, uh, I'm from New Jersey. I was born in New Jersey, um, grew up my entire life here, went to Seton Hall University. Uh, Big E school. Um, and uh, so not a not, not a target, right, for investment banking. Um, not at all. Um, you know, I was not heavily recruited um, for the big four or anything like that. You know, I had to 
network and, and fight my way into Wall Street. Um, and once again, that intersection of, of technology and uh, investment banking came into play. I remember uh, I found a list of A to Z investment banks, boutique investment banks in New York City. I started calling them one by one and I get down to a, a firm, the B's, and um, they do process control and test and measurement and technology stuff that I grew up doing. And, um, you know, I picked up and I didn't say I was a finance student. I said, hey, you know, I am a finance student, but I've done process control. I wrote software. I, I developed hardware. And he was like, oh, wow. Um, and invited me in for an interview and ended up working there for a few years, all based on the fact that I understood technology. Um, it was less about investment banking, right? And uh, then uh, as I got a little bit older, um, I realized that I wanted to be more uh, in charge of my deal process. Uh, I wanted to source deals. I wanted to um, manage the entire M&A process. And I wanted to negotiate. And, and I wanted to be a big part of the M&A strategy. And I decided to start George Plus Company. And uh, here we are. Uh, it's been five years. And, and uh, we're growing. And I'm excited about where we're going as an organization. Awesome. <clears throat> now, you say on your uh, description, you guys do a lot of stuff with international. Mm -hmm. um, I know we talked before the show, you're also very into sustainability, and that's a very hot topic right now. How does that come into play in the mergers and acquisitions space? So, um, Ron, you know, sustainability is just being thrown around, right? Um, mm -hmm. the, the S in ESG, right? And um, we are seeing now that the financial world, the investment world, has largely trended towards, um, I would say, putting a premium on companies that are sustainable. Now, I am by no means an expert in sustainability, right? Um, I simply know of it from a strategic standpoint. Um, companies that are sustainable demand a premium. Um, and, and I think that is irrespective of politics, right? I believe whether there's a Republican in the White House or whether there's a Democrat in the White House, I think that this is now no longer a trend. I believe it's the way of life for most companies. And, you know, um, especially in the world that I work in, um, sustainability is actually probably a very, very big problem um, because uh, one, from the financial side, I believe that private equity investors, I believe family offices, institutional investors, the LPs that are funding um, private equity funds and GPs, they are now looking for uh, sustainability metrics as part of their due diligence, right? So... And before, before we go too deep into this, define what sustainability is in the concept of this. Is it just like if I produce coffee and I sell coffee pods, I use a reusable or a uh, environmentally friendly um, container? Or is it just, you know, buying carbon offsets or all of it? It's, it's a combination, right? So there are obviously the things that happen from a physical nature, right? You know, natural environmental things that's one and of course within your company as well right so your for example lithium-ion batteries right you can mine them in a very sustainable way right or very unsustainable way right so as an organization you have to think you know if i am not mining the lithium for my lithium-ion batteries in my electric vehicle how will I be perceived five or 10 years from now when it is a very important thing? That's, that's really what it is about. Okay. That's a very good example. If you've ever seen what those mines look, it's just, mm -hmm. just open like grand Canyon in the ground. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
you're, you know, most mining in most countries, or at least here in the United States, has high requirements for restoring land back to a usable state. Mm -hmm. But some of these countries that, you know, these guys are going out and buying uh, the lithium for the batteries and other precious minerals don't necessarily have those. And I can see where sustainability is like, look, even if they don't have them, we're going to do what's right, you mm -hmm. know, so. You know, you know what, the, the, the thing that I think you'll see is that industrials manufacturing technology hasn't caught up yet, right? So you go to Costco, right? Um, and, and don't quote me on this, but I believe Costco, when they sell a piece of fish in Costco, it has to be sustainably produced, right? Whether it's farm-raised or wild-caught, it has to be sustainably produced. They're not going to buy fish from suppliers who go deplete resources in Southeast Asia, right? So it's food and beverage has been there for a while. They've they focused on sustainability. I think industrials and manufacturing and technology just has not caught up yet. Do you think there's going to be like a, a, a stamp or something for products and, and food services and other stuff that shows you it's sustainably produced? Like, you know, kind of like organic is. And it's, here in the United States, if you stamp something organic, there's supposed to be some level of oversight to prove that it's organic. Yeah. Like, is, do you think there'll be some type of like national or international seal for this was done, you know, environmentally responsible? No, but I'll tell you where we're going. Um, I think it was last week, the SEC came out and said that publicly traded companies are going to have to, within 60 or 90 days, uh, speak about their, their ESG, their sustainability. They're going to have to report it on the 10K, right? So here we are. We pay millions of dollars as publicly traded companies to get our financial statements audited, right? You now need to put into your report that goes to the SEC, along with your audited financial statements, a report on your ESG, Right. Right. So now what's going to happen is M&A is going to dictate that stamp of approval, right? So, so now I am the world's largest industrial corporation. Uh, let's just pick, for example, Honeywell, right? I'm Honeywell. Uh, I'm in oil and gas technology very heavily, um, which is a problem in itself, right? And then, um, but now I'm making a small acquisition. I'm not talking about a big $200 million acquisition. I am buying a small technology company based out of the Northeast area or the Bay Area who is only worth about $5 million, but it's very critical to our growth going forward. But the key component in there is a rare earth mineral that is unsustainably produced somewhere else. They have to report that on their 10K. Right. So I think now bigger corporations are going to start putting pressure on small to medium sized middle market businesses. Say, Hey, guys, I'm doing all this due diligence that we've done before on on finance, accounting, sales, marketing, operations, legal. But you know what? Sustainability is important. now. So right? one of the yeah, one of the things that brings up is for our our typical audience, which is kind of the buying companies, acquisition entrepreneurs, buying companies that are about one million in revenue all the way up to about 20 million dollars revenue. Uh, we call ourselves acquisition entrepreneurs, and we kind of operate right under that PE, PE uh, like where they're targeting uh, mm -hmm. the private equity and strategic purchasers are uh, are, are looking because we're wanting to buy these and grow those into selling it to that that customer base. Now, the issue that that brings up for us is now we have to be concerned with that and have that in our deal room. What how you know our sustainability because anybody that's acquiring us that's larger public. Um, you know, potentially a strategic purchase where we're going to get our highest multiple. 
they're going to need to know that as part of their due diligence as buying us because they have to report it on their paperwork. Uh, let me let me let me paint this picture for you, right? So it's about two to three years from now. Um, the SEC regulations now are in full effect, right? And you've got a technology company that was built out of a, a research university, right? So they started making a product, right? They probably don't have audited financial statements, their sales and marketing policies proceed. Nothing is in place, right? The first thing in their mind when it comes to a due diligence or even maybe professionalizing their business is going, how can we get our policies for sales and marketing, finance and accounting, operations, legal and HR? None of them right now are thinking about ESG and sustainability, right? None of them. So it's going to be a shock when two to three years, maybe five years from now, you're ready to exit your business and you go, the due diligence team or the M&A team from some large multi-billion dollar company comes and says, hey, what have you guys done in terms of ESG? They have no idea what that word means. They've got no scores, no metrics, no records, no nothing, right? And, and that's where, you know, we've been trying to build awareness of, you know what, you, you guys need to start thinking about it now. Um, I'm not saying that it's going to be easy to transform your business, but you should at least have a plan in place to make that transition uh, into a sustainably compliant organization. You know, I see it starting to pop up here a lot. I, I know investors who... Uh... Uh, I've worked with is that's what they're looking for. They're looking for that ESG uh, component um, or companies that you know do really well in that. Uh, some of them refer to themselves as investors in that space. <laughs> but you do some stuff internationally and help people do stuff internationally. Is there any countries that are like way ahead of us on this and they're really uh, readily critical on it? You know, I would right off the bat, right, the European Union. Right. Um, I would say that um, when it comes to any aspect of ESG, right, when it comes to the governance and the social aspects of it and environmental, the European Union is is, in my opinion, far ahead of everyone else. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it'd be important for us to discuss in a bit is what do we do about the additional cost that is incurred by having to transition your supply chain over to sustainably compliant um uh, competence or, or, you know, inputs, you know, but uh, like, you know, Europe is the leading is the leading place for such things. You know, the interesting thing inside of that is if you're running lean, like say you're in a commoditized product mm -hmm. base and mm -hmm. you've been competing on price for a while and now this movement comes forward and says, you know, ESG is important and you have to have sustainable resources. It's kind of like I, I'm imagining that sustainable resources are and, and i I apologize for being a little bit ignorant on this subject, and I'm willing to admit that. But I imagine that they're like organic resources, meaning they're going to be a little bit more pricey. So you price yourself into a commodity, you know, producing a commodity, you've, you know, you're competing on price because, you know, you're big enough to do that. And now you need to change your sourcing around to be something sustainable that, you know, very likely is going to come at a premium. It, it is going to come at a premium. Um but I think it's very important for us to understand that this particular conversation is happening in a vacuum, right? Um, we're talking about sustainability in a vacuum because the because people don't understand it, right? It hasn't gained full traction yet. Sustainability impacts a lot of things. It, it impacts your suppliers. It impacts your customers. Uh, it impacts the transportation and logistics surrounding your product, right? So... You can't simply say, you know what, I want to be a sustainable company and do all these you know, things 
you know, you might price yourself out of the market, right? Um, and you might cause a lot of damage to the um, total supply chain, right? And, and I think uh, it's going to take time for that to build and, and come to a point where uh, I think sustainably compliant products um, or services are close to um, what's traditionally been sold and, and, and provided. I get that. And um, if you, I'm just, I'm, I'm really kind of, kind of stuck on this topic of, you know, we're, we're taking a shot. There's part of me that says there's a, there's a misalignment. Here's where I'm going with this, I guess. There's a misalignment with consumer sentiment, like Mm -hmm. this social, social economic component to where society needs, you know, at the consumer level. And I've been talking about at that, that commodity product consumer level, Guys buying coffee on a da- daily basis that would never pay for a premium blend, it, or, or they're not buying single. Like there's there's a lot of stuff going on in coffee right now about being single source, mm-hmm. being uh, you know sustainable, treating the farmers right, all the different stuff that's in that space. Mm-hmm. But you still have, I would say, the majority of the consumer market buying um, Folgers or something else off the off the shelf. And they just don't care. They want to drink what they drink and they want it to the most affordable price. Right. Uh, so how did, I, I'm wondering when that shift's going to make, because I think before some of these commoditized products can really get into this, mm-hmm. the consumers just have to understand that, you know, or buy into the story that this is important. Yeah. Uh, it has to, you're a hundred percent right. Right. It cannot be, supply side driven, it has to be demand side driven, right? Um, I believe that over the next, I think in the industrial markets, it's a little different, I think. Um, I think people see the value of it because a lot of the components and, and um, um, inputs in, in manufacturing and industrial technology is rare as it is right now, right? Um, so I think they're a little bit farther ahead. But on the consumer side, you're 100% right, sir. It's it. The demand has to drive this shift, and and I think that as more millennials grow up, and and um, you know their tastes are well, you know, much different from my generation who grew up in the '90s, and and you know older than that. As they grow older, as they get purchasing power, and as they prefer these sort of sustainable products, I think you'll see the change happen uh, in the consumer side of things, and I think that's at least you know ten to fifteen years off. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean. We're all business owners. Everybody listen to this. We thrive on the consumer consumerism. I guess you want to say, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, just our nature, especially here in the United States, that every problem has a, a solution you can buy. Mm-hmm. You know, to where there is a shift now, where you know, of do it yourself, fix it, fix mm-hmm. things, repair mm-hmm. things. Don't just toss them away. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know. I'm 50. I just turned 50. And in my lifetime, it went from everything was, you know, single use throwaway. You know, like, you know, I remember times growing up where my parents just didn't want to do dishes and bought, you know, just because, like anytime we had more than five or 10 people coming over for a barbecue, it was, we had the dishes for it. We, but there was paper, paper plates and pa- plastic cups in the 90s, right? And we went from that to, you know, that's not so much okay anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I have a friend who said he went to a barbecue. He actually posted all over a lot. I went to a barbecue and they were using solo cups and he was just so frustrated. He knows they like, they know I'm an environmentalist. Why do they invite, you know, invite me? And I was like, okay, well that's you, but there's more of that going on now. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious on this shift 
you know, and uh, really curious on the international impact of it, just because, you know, we live in, in, in a very privileged state, you know, right. in the United States, so, uh, the United States is just, it's, it's just a, a different beast of its own. We're pro-consumer, we're pro-business and, uh, you know, but you go to a lot of other countries, especially anything that I hate the phrase, I don't know a better phrase for it, like third world, low income uh, countries and where they're just trying to, the businesses there, a lot of them are just trying to get by. Okay. And as this, as this spreads, anything that happens here, anything that happens in Europe eventually makes itself and kind of pressures the rest of the world to do it. I'm just curious on the impact to uh, economies and, and, and environments where they're just doing their best right now to, to, uh, to get by. You know, it's uh, I wasn't born in India. I was born here in the United States. Right. And, but I've had the chance to go back to India a number of times. And, and of course, uh, my travels, uh, my, my work um, allows me to travel quite a bit and, and see different areas of the globe. Um, it's an interesting point you make, but I think that there is a solution for it. Right. Um, I think that the world as a whole, yes, it's going to make a massive impact. Right. Let's agree on that. Right. Um, this sort of sustainability shift is going to have a massive impact on the world around us, right? But there is an intersection there where I think that people really need to think critically about and and put into action. One is that um, some of these uh, poorer third world countries are very natural resource rich, right? We know that about India. We know that about Southeast Asia. We know that about Africa, right? And to be honest with you, even South America has some incredible natural resources, Right. In these areas, there's a, a majority of the people are living very close to the poverty line, right? So I believe the world has to come together in some form or fashion and figure out how can we uplift the economic status of the people in these countries by allowing them to be manufacturers or producers of sustainable goods that now the first world countries can use, right? And yeah. that would solve a lot of issues, I think. I think I'm the rare uh, business guy who just doesn't understand how can, you know, how can a diamond mine in South Africa be in a community where the people are barely making it and that diamond mine is producing billions of dollars and that's okay, right? I just don't understand that in my realm. I get it. I understand it's the uh, corporate greed or whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, greedy capitalist pig mentality. Uh, and I, I joke around and call myself a greedy capitals pig, but I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could actually buy a diamond mine in, 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 a, in a, you know, South African or wherever they happen to be community and ha have essentially slave labor barely, you know, barely doing the work. I just it just does not make sense to me. No, and no, no. Uh, so I, I like the sustainability movement. I see it making a difference. I see that, you know, all of us as acquisition entrepreneurs need to at least be aware of what it is. Mm -hmm. And if you have intentions to ever sell one of your entities to a publicly traded, you're almost going to have to deal with it. Right. And if you're going to ever want to get the highest value out of yours, you got to remember these strategic uh, acquisitions and the publicly traded companies that are buying you, mm -hmm. even some of these family offices, they're looking for this now. So the guys that would pay you the most, just, a, you know, pretty much everything other than a sole operator, mm -hmm. uh, you know, is going to take a look and, and see how you, how, how you handle your, the ESG side of your, the sustainability side of your business and um, the environmental and so, uh, Again, I'm going to display my ignorance. It's environmental, this sustainability. What's the G stand for? Uh, governance. 
Governance. Okay. It's actually, I believe it's environmental, social, and governance. And I believe sustainability is a piece of environmental. Environmental. Okay. So I, I'll just admit yeah. that I don't know what the acronym was. Uh, I know what the concept is. I, like I said, it's interesting you said it's bigger in Europe because the two or three investors I was telling you about that, like they, they tell everybody they're, they, they buy companies with ESG components and that's what they're focused on. They're all in the UK, mm-hmm. right? They uh, are in that area. They travel that area and they're big on that. So I, I can see why, because they're ahead of us probably four or five years, it sounds like. Yeah, I would, that's, that's, that's accurate. That's accurate. Yeah. They actually, so, you know, the European Union um, actually funds companies that are progressing on developing technologies for this area. So let's let's go back to the international side of things, just because I haven't had anybody on the show that does a bunch. I've had Sebastian on here, which mentors doing international deals and stuff. But what are the differences uh, between like cross-border M&A uh, and when you're going through the process from an investor's banker's point of view? What do you look at differently if I was going to buy a business and come to you and say, hey, I want to buy, I don't know, just throw something out there. I want to buy uh, 25 to 100 of this business in this industry, roll them up, and I'd like to work with you guys and back me as a thing. What's the difference between doing that here in the United States and then me telling you, hey, I'm going to do 10 of them in the United States, 10 of them in Brazil, 10 of them in, you know, Europe, um, are there huge requirement differences as far as the due diligence and all the stuff that goes along that? Um, I would say that it's it's less about the due diligence, but more about the perception of the company in three key areas, right? Um, culture, culture, culture. Listen, um, I, I can't stress this enough that each individual country has its own cultures. And sometimes that could be within very within the region itself, right? And and I'll go back to Brazil because Brazil's uh, been a place that I've worked in for a long time, and um, we have investors in Brazil who won't touch the rest of South America, and then I have investors who sit who have spoken to alongside the coast, uh, the the border of Brazil, who won't touch Brazil. Why? Because of the the massive cultural differences, right? Um, I've dealt with potential Asian acquirers before. And uh, they are very slow. It's very methodical. It's very calculated, right? It's not just, hey, here, we're interested. Here's an offer. Let's buy the business. It takes six months sometimes to bring them around. Um, In India, they're going to negotiate hard, right? In Europe, uh, the culture is a bit more punctual on time. Americans, I, Americans in North America, I believe we're a little more flexible when it comes to these sort of cultural things because of kind of the, the diversity we have, the diversity of thought we have in this country. But every country is different culturally. And when you go to do M&A in there, you must understand that culture first and get a plan to work through it. Okay? It's interesting. I uh, Many years ago, before I even got into M&A, we were looking at buying a business in a tropical, I, I won't say where, just because Laws have changed since then, and it was a very corrupt area, and I'm going to say something bad about the area, and I, it may not be even true anymore. But uh, this was a kind of a resort we were looking at buying. We had raised money for some investors. They said yes. We were starting to do the kind of due diligence on the – it was a very large kind of uh, bread and breakfast type of resort. Uh, matter of fact, when the cruise ship stopped nearby, the the uh, city would you know say, hey, if you want to stay in town, stay over here. And – when I was reviewing their books, it was like there was a lot of stuff on the uh, in there. Like, it was a considerable figure uh, that was gifts and other expenses. Mm-hmm. And so I 
got the owner on a private call and I said, what is gifts and other expenses? He goes, Hey, we're in so-and-so. So it's a South American nice. Island. And, uh, and I was like, okay. Yeah. He's like, if you want to continue having the cruise ship bring their tours by and have, you know, the crews offer your, uh, like the, 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 the resort actually had fishing guides. They had, they had skiffs that could take people fishing on, like, you know, in the reefs and stuff, catch barracuda and stuff. Anyway, it was a, a pretty good little business. And he said, you got to pay this, the, the, the local, the equivalent of a sheriff. They call him a constable or something like that, or a Spanish word, Spanish word that means that. But basically, the local sheriff and the local mayor basically got a monthly stipend of gifts from this, this resort. And that's because whenever there were city town councils or something, and they were like, working deals out with the Carnival Cruise Lines or the other cruise lines that stopped at the one giant pier that's there for the cruises to stop, they would say, what's on the island for the people to do? They would pitch your stuff. So like, if you wanted them to say, so I was like, okay, you're bribing officials. Oh, no, no, we don't call it bribes here. Yeah. That's, that's just not, you know, it's not a bribe. That's a negative thing. This is just how we do business here. And, and there's a lot of cultures where gifting, as they called it, is culturally acceptable and normal. Um, and to where us here, we would consider that, you know, shady, you know, you know, um, matter of fact, that wasn't the only shady thing that was going on. So I backed out of the deal. Um, but, um, like I didn't necessarily want to own a business to where I constantly, you know, they elect a new sheriff. I have to worry about how he's going to handle it and how much he wanted. And, you know, all that. It was just, it was just a game I wasn't ready to play. Um, are those the cultural differences you're looking at or is it just, I mean, that's just one of them, right? That's just one of them. And, and um, it, it, it's really about how people are, right? It's about what makes them go, how they think about life, you know? Um, and, and it, you know, m and I would say is 90% psychological and 10% technical, right? I 100% agree. And you know? so many people miss the human side of this, right? Mm-hmm. They go in and like, show me the numbers. I've had people like, Hey, will you help me get on the first call? I, I'm just wanting to, I want to buy a business. Will you, will you get on the first couple calls with me? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I've done a few hundred of these calls by now. I'm comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I said, first thing I always tell them on the first call, it's just rapport. Mm-hmm. All we're, we're trying to learn from the seller, unless there's a broker involved and that changes the dynamics. But if we're talking directly to a business owner who's thinking about selling, mm-hmm. all we're wanting to do is figure out what their motivations are build rapport with them and figure out where they want to get. That's the first call, 35 to 45 minutes. Let's just figure out where they want to be. I've been scheduling for an hour, but I've shifted my mindset. That's just too much. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens is when, you build, when you're done out of building rapport and you figure out where they want to go and you right. schedule for an hour, you start almost going into your pitch there. You're not ready to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say most acquisition entrepreneurs operating, especially the new guys like myself that's only been doing this for two and a half years, well, we're operating off of being trained by mentors, reading everything we get our hands on. Maybe we've got some college education behind acquisitions and mergers, you know, running a search fund and stuff. And, but it's about like, make sure the numbers are good. Make sure the legal stuff's good. That's all needed. But if you don't have the human aspect of this done, right. you're not getting to the other side of it. And I'm a firm believer that I did real estate for years all the time. Mm-hmm. And somebody says like, well, how do you buy so many houses? I was like, I get to know the owners and work with them. I've had people sell me houses for five, six, seven thousand dollars cheaper than the highest offer because they liked me and I was little, you know, I sat down and listened to them and figured out what's going wrong and right. you know, help remove the fear and help them get to the next level where they want to go. And my offer was cheaper than the others, but they chose me anyway. And that happens constantly. Right. 
right. in the merger and acquisition space. I would say that most businesses under that's not publicly traded mm-hmm. that are say under the fifteen million dollar, twenty million dollar uh, revenue mark. I would say there's a majority of them that don't sell to the highest and best offer. They sell to the offer that meets the most needs of this, the sellers. Right. And, exactly. uh, you know, that includes like legacy, mm-hmm. cultural, like will you take care of my people, will yes. you take care of my brand, my name. Like there's some, there's an ego attached to the, to the business. There's an identity attached. A lot of entrepreneurs t- tie their identity to it. So, uh, I think a lot of us miss that. A lot of uh, mergers and acquisitions, they jump right into show me the numbers. I want to see if this is a profitable business. You know, I for for us, um, we because of the size of deals that we're working with and and some of the engagements we have, um, I need to approach it as not not just hey, it's an asset, right? It's human capital, right? And I have to have a personal connection with the person and. And I try to make it a point in the way that I conduct myself and my organization conducts itself that um, that there is empathy, right? There's compassion. There's an understanding of their issues. And um, I, I, there's two ways I address it. If it's an older owner, right, who's looking to exit, um, it's pretty clear cut, right? He wants to exit the business fully. A lot of the times he's made emotional attachment with his employees and the location. So we ask him, what are your concerns around these things, right? What do you want me to prioritize in the M&A process with the perspective required when it comes to these things, right? And secondly, when it comes to uh, key employees in the organization, almost immediately right off the start, we're asking them, hey, what do we need to do for you in this deal, right? Um, you're critical to this deal getting completed. The, the, the new owners or the new uh, acquirers are going to want to know that you're engaged, what do you want? What's going to make it worthwhile for you? What's going to make you happy? And also, what do you, how do you want your career to look? So we we go through a couple of these things to build that relationship and build that uh, connection. And, and I see that it really does help the deal quite a bit. I, I get it. And if you miss that component, mm-hmm. uh, I'm a big believer, like nobody cares what you know until they know you care. Uh, I know I, that's don't quote me on that. I've read so many books. I stole it from something I've read or heard. Mm-hmm. But um I, I really believe that. I really believe that until you built that rapport, that bond, people trust you. And uh, trust is made through communication most of the time, right? Mm-hmm. It can be made over years and it can be destroyed in minutes, but you can start building rapport on call one just by, you know, listening. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to catch it, but I actually have one of the coaches from uh, the Black Swan Group, Never Split mm-hmm. the Difference, and they talk about tactical empathy and, and, and rapport building. And if you look at like how they diffuse, mm. uh, you think about, you know, most of the guys in the Black Swan group, the coaches were actually uh, FBI hostage negotiators to start with. So the guy I had on the call, Derek, was an FBI hostage negotiator. And if you think about it, what he's selling is you want to get out and be free and I'm selling you 20 years in jail. Mm-hmm. And they have a 90 something percent success rate. And I asked him about that. Like, how does that true? And he says, rapport. We get in, we listen more than we speak. We figure out what they're trying to get to. And then we, you know, we, we show them a path that, you know, keeps them alive. And usually that ends up in 10 or 20 years in prison. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, I don't know that I could sell 20 years in prison to somebody who's desperately trying to do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I really, I really think we ought to lean into like, 
how do they do that? How do they pull out, you know, work on that? And how can we apply that inside of other aspects of business? And it really comes down to the human aspect of it, the understanding where that person is trying to get, having them felt under, heard and understood. And uh, then, then coming up with a solution that makes sense for both parties. Mm-hmm. Is absolutely, absolutely. So if somebody was wanting, like, and, and I operate in a, in a space where we do a lot of, you know, situations where we're trying to do, like, get the owner's owner finance, where uh, I've got investors and stuff like that that'll, you know, tie money with mine and, and help me put in, in things. I've also got, uh, you know, other ways to do this, but I've never actually went the investment bank route. And a lot of the guys, you know, listening here probably are the same thing. What is the route to approach an investment bank and say, here's a project I've got, here's what we're trying to do. What, what type of deals do you want to fund? What are you looking for? So let me, let me go to step back and let me go to the first part of that. Right. And, and how do you approach an investment bank? Right. Um, and I would say that the, I think you should interview investment banks, right? Um, I think that the investment bank and the potential client should be on equal footing. And I really believe that um, you should, one, uh, explore whether or not the investment bank is a subject matter expert on the area that you work in, okay? Um, and I, I, that's number one, right? Two is do you do they have um, sort of consider does the investment bank have consideration for the not the, the intangible things like you know key employees keeping the employees the location personal wishes and desires and dreams and and legacy right if so if you've got a good industry fit and then if you've got a good sort of intangibles they 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 handle all the intangibles well then I would say you should proceed with um, you know uh, with working with that organization. Do not prioritize some sort of evaluation that they gave you, okay? Because I'll be very honest with you, there is, I can pick a number that is higher than any other valuation out there, and I can defend that number to death, right? And I think that, secondly, they can also tell you that we'll do it in X amount of time, right? And it doesn't matter, right? Um, an M&A deal is going to take... The quickest it will take is probably 45 to 60 days, right? Um, nothing shorter. Um, and the longest it takes is nine months. Now, and, and I said, don't, don't pick an investment bank on what they tell you about valuation and timeline. Yeah, I know a lot of people are like, I need this, you know, the, the seller thinks he needs to sell within 90 days. He's got a medical issue or a retirement. I can't go down the investment bank that takes 12 to, uh, 12 to 24 weeks. And I was like, eh, it's not necessarily true. You probably call them more investment banks. There's somebody out there. Uh, I, I'm a big believer. I don't like. I never. I don't know if I'll ever have him on the show just because of his his mouth. But I like Dan. I think the Pina or whatever. He's on YouTube a lot. He cusses crazy. But mm-hmm. one of the things he said is, there's always somebody out there with the money that'll believe in your project. And he's he's much. I'm, I'm very very much par- paraphrasing this. I'm dropping all the four lettered words out <laughs> and a lot of the vulgarness out of it. But basically, you know, he says. If you've got a concept and it's valid, somebody out there will fund it, you know. So it, I, I believe that. And I, like I said, I've never ventured into the investment banks, the realm. So if what would we bring to you? What, what would be the, you know, if I came to you today and said, here's a project I want to work on, 
does this excite you at all? <laughs> you know, no, I, do, you I, mean for us, do you mean for us as George Plus Company or you mean generally the investment banking? Let's role? start with you and we'll go over like, what do you think? You know, you know the industry a little bit. So right. like, what would you require? How do you find your deals? You source them yourself. You go out and find somebody and say, hey, I'd like to work with you. Or yes. do you have people coming to you? So, so we have a bit of both um, because we're still a young organization. A lot of it is external business development. Um, we are targeting companies that have some that are mainly industrials, manufacturing technology, right? But have something unique to it. For example, I don't necessarily want to represent a company that makes copper fittings, right? That gets sold for the millions at Home Depot, right? That's yes, it's technology, but it's commodity based technology, right? Um, the line I draw is, do you have something unique, a unique value proposition, whether that be your knowledge base or your, your end applications? It doesn't have to be patents and trade secrets and intellectual property. It can just be that I know how to do something better than someone else, right? Um, that's where we draw the line. We want to work with technology companies, whether that be soft or hard technology, um, where there is some unique value proposition when it comes to the core product, right? So that's number one. Secondly, uh, I don't care about region. Um, I, you can come to me from any region and I'll take it on. Um, I don't care about revenue so much. Um, I would say, you know, 1 million, like you said, 1 million and up, um, I'll start looking at it. Sub 1 million is really difficult for me. Um, uh, honestly, sub 2 is probably difficult for me. 2 and up, we can start working on it. Um, third, um, profitability is important. But it depends on what type of company you are, right? So if you are a company that's generating $2 million of revenue and you have negative profitability because you're plowing all your cash into new development, I'm good, right? But if your company is three to five years old and you've been doing $2 million every year and you have negative uh, profitability because your gross margins are below 50% or 40%, then I'm probably not going to touch it, right? So those are kind of the metrics that I look out. Um, and then I would say the... The third piece of all this, um, Ron, is that I, I want to be comfortable in doing this transaction, right? Not that I want to have to know every potential acquirer. We're able to do our research, but I want to be able to speak about it intelligently, right? I want to be the best advocate for the owner, for the executive, or, or the entrepreneur. And, and, and so I try to take on deals where I can offer some value for them in that, in that aspect. I got it. So, and you think that's parallel with most of the investment banks that are out there? They're going to want the similar things? Yes, I believe so. But obviously, you're going to look at uh, different ranges. For example, you know, uh, an elite boutique like Hulahan Loki or, or Moelis may not necessarily come down to our level. Um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but at the same time, I think they we all operate a tiny bit differently. But generally, everyone's looking for things like that. And what would be the upper range? What's the biggest deal that you would be willing to go out and raise capital for and help fund? Um, there's no upper range. Uh, I will not turn my back on larger deals. Larger deals are obviously, uh, there's a smaller set of people that can afford it, but easier to defend, right? And and I think, I, I wouldn't. I mean, uh, listen, we're working on an acquisition mandate now for um, a company that's got about $1.7 of revenue. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. And at the same time, we're working with companies that have 10 million in revenue. So it doesn't bother us. We can go large or small. Okay. One of my favorite questions always to ask is, what is one myth inside of your industry, your profession that you believe that it just shouldn't be out there and you need to debunk it right now? Hmm. Interesting. Um, 
a lot of people say that you sh- that you shouldn't hire an investment banker, right? Because it makes you look bad. It makes you look incapable as an owner. And a lot of that comes from the venture capital world, right? Um, and so, not as much in private equity. Private equity actually likes to play uh, broker's fees and things. So venture capital world, they say, hey, you shouldn't come to us with a deal from an investment banker. I think that's, that's just BS, okay? Um, I think that they want you in the room and they want to work you over. They know that an investment banker is going to represent and advocate for the client and defend them and make sure that the valuation and the terms are adequate and what typically is in the market. And and I think that startup companies, um, high growth startup companies need to start thinking very wisely uh, and need to start pushing back against venture capital and saying, hey, we're going to hire investment bankers. You know, it's interesting. And I'm going to tick off some of my friends. I have at least a half a dozen friends that own venture capital friends companies, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say something derogatory here. I think that totally comes out of laziness, and uh, mm-hmm. as humans, we're uh, just characteristically lazy. It's a lot more work to negotiate and work on something when there's somebody on the other side that's as intelligent as you. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing as inside of our space, the acquisition entrepreneur space. We often say. Uh, brokers and CPAs kill deals. So mm-hmm. we want to we want to source off market deals. And it's mm-hmm. because we like to own or finance the deals and the brokers are risk adverse. And there are a lot of people that won't pay those payments. So they just like they kind of just categorize everybody is no business should ever own or finance their business. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of strategic advantages to it, both tax wise. And uh, like if you got a business owner who's trying to retire and he's more worried about having $10,000 a month to live on than he is getting a check and paying taxes on a $2 million, you know, transaction, right? Which is, you know, capital gains and, uh, you know, like, what did you do with the money? Where do you stick it? So now you've got, a, you know, investment fees and all the other stuff on top of it. Whereas, you know, if you want, if, you, if you're just trying to get that because your financial planner said, yes, what you need to, you need a $2 million to, to retire, uh, you're 65 and you want to, you know, make sure you got money until you're 95, you know, you need $10,000 a month to live on that. It's a lot more economically sound for a guy like me to go, fine, I'll give you $10,000 a month until we hit your $2 million valuation. And, uh, you know, which I think is a premium to pay for your business because most businesses are overpriced, but I'm willing to do that because if we calculate interest into it, it's going to come around that anyway. And now they're paying income tax or, you know, non-capital gains on a yearly thing and their yearly basis, all their normal yearly deductions come out of that, you know, so. Yeah, I agree. agree. But a lot of people say, you know, brokers will kill those type of deals just because they're number one, they're concerned about who's going to pay their, uh, (laughs) their commission check. And number two, they're risk adverse wondering what happens if he doesn't pay. And well, you know, there are bad investment bankers and they're bad brokers, like, like any other industry, there's bad CPs and bad lawyers, right? Yeah. You've got to find the right people to work with. Let's, like, not to brag, right? I'm not gloating, right? Um, when I go to bed at night, um, it's less about my commissions or my success fees and more about, did I do right by that person, right? And that's the way I live my life. That's the way I run my organization. And everybody in my organization will align with that or they'll be out, right? And and that's about it, right? And so that's why I said, you know, you asked the question, how do you approach an investment bank? Interview them, find out who they're about, try to meet them and see what goes on. You know, what would you if you were in my shoes and you were thinking about like starting some big project where you wanted investment banker backing, what would be the 
selection criteria, what would you, I, you know, I already know you want to interview them. You want to make sure there's a personal match. Are there any other um, indications or any things you would look for to say, yeah, this is probably a good one to look for. Or, yeah, maybe not. It's a good question. Um, usually good people um, run good processes, but if there was one more to think about, I would say um, ask them to define their process, right? Um, we do, we have a, we have a process. Okay. Now, you get, you you understand M and A right, Ron? It's it's never it's never a straight line, right? <laughs> yeah. But discipline is still needed, right? There's a certain type of documentation that's needed. There's a certain type of way to do due diligence. There's a certain type of way to be organized, right? There's there needs to be certain goals and and objectives and timelines as part of the M and A process. So don't don't pressure the organization or the, the the investment bank to give you a very hard, strict discipline process, but see if something is in place to guide their thinking. Um, and that's how we operate. Listen, I have so many situations where I have to modify or be flexible with a particular part of my process or, um, you know, supply some additional documentation that I typically wouldn't have. It, but there is 75% of it's covered by a process. So somebody on one of my Slack channels is watching this and he popped up a question. He really wants to answer me. I got to ask this. So I'll ask you, um, John over here wants to know personal guarantees. When he, when he fills out the paperwork to do all the stuff on any business with the SBA, the, uh, with the SBA back loans, which only go up to 5 million, I think in deals size, mm -hmm. he has to personally guarantee everything. And basically everything he, he exists, everything he's ever touched and, and his firstborn child, mm -hmm. he's wondering, are investment banks as strict on that? Oh, are they more on the finances and structure of the actual company? So um, I would assume he's referring to private equity firms, right? The, right. the ones that invest in these deals. They are not, I would, I, I very rarely have I heard about uh, somebody looking for a personal guarantee from a private equity firm. What they are going to ask for to see whether you're committed is rolling over equity, right? So so say you're going to buy an acquisition. So say you put in a million dollars or whatever it is. Uh, say you put in 10 to 20%, right? Um, you know, when the transaction does happen, they're going to ask you to keep that equity in there and roll it over, right? And not cash out fully, you know? Um, but it's, it's, it's important. So private equities are typically infusing cash. SBA is primarily lending money. Right. So there are distinct differences, but I would say the private equity rarely does personal guarantees. And then when you guys fund deals for acquisitions and stuff, are you raising money from private equity or private investors or using some of your own money or what is that? So we don't use any of our own money. Right. So it's all we are standing in the middle and we're trying to facilitate the transaction. Right. Um, we approach private equity. Um, depending on the deal, I always insist that the client also uh, uh, approach strategic acquirers, right? You never know, right? Because it might be better to hold 10 or 20% of an organization that's worth a hundred million than, than just go out there and sell it to a private equity firm and, and, and not get much growth, right? So it's private equity uh, and it's uh, strategic acquirers. And occasionally, depending on the situation, uh, we will work with private debt funds. Okay. Well, we're at the top of the hour, man. This like flew by. I, I love this conversation. I love we we talked about some really new stuff, like you know how do, how do we start the process with you know 
investment banks, you know, where do they, you know, we talked about just now, like where do investment banks get their money from, uh, you know, and, and help, you know, when they're helping line up deals and stuff. Mm -hmm. The other thing, the sustainability side of it, I think that's something that uh, is a conversation we've never had on this show. And mm -hmm. it's something that's overlooked right now. Uh, and I know for myself, I've got some interesting projects. I'm kind of thinking about sticking my toes in. Uh, mm -hmm. That's why I brought up coffee. I'm thinking about buying some coffee roasteries, mm -hmm. um, roasters, and uh, from the subscription side, uh, ones that are established and actually have uh, uh, people who order on a monthly basis from them. But that sustainability comes in there big time, right? Um, uh, there's a guy here in town. It's his. His is run from like his family owns the farm raising the beans. His wife's family does. He brings them here to the U.S. He roasts them and he distributes them. And uh, so I'm going to go sit down with him just to learn the industry. And the funny thing is I don't even drink coffee. I love the smell, hate the taste, but it's just a, an intriguing business because people are so loyal to it. Mm -hmm. But I never thought about the ESG side of it. I knew that he had a component, but I didn't realize how critical it was because the whole point of me acquiring, you know, kind of micro roast roasting things is to have a brand that has a bunch of them and eventually exit it for something. And I know for a fact in that space, if I exit it, I better have a whole like section of my deal room covering the ESG side of it, or I'm not going to get the multiples I would you know expect to get out of it. Listen, fair trade coffee logo on a coffee bag in your place is just not good enough anymore. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, it needs a lot more. It does. I appreciate your time. It's, uh, it's, like I said, we're, we're at the top of the hour now. How do people contact you and get a hold of you? What's the best way? Uh, you can, uh, best way to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, okay. It's obviously right below here, but they can also uh, reach out to me via email. Um, it's my personal email, um, my, my personal company email. Uh, it's Jacob, J-A-C-O-B at J-R-G-E-O-R-G-E.com. Uh, and uh, we can start a conversation there and, and then... Uh, Zoom, Google Meet, whatever else we need to do. Awesome. I appreciate it. So for you guys that are on the uh, podcast, when this comes live on that, his link on LinkedIn is his full name. So if you're going to search for him on uh, LinkedIn, it's under Jacob Ronnie, R-O-N-N-I-E, George, uh, uh, spelt normally J-A-C-O-B-R-O-N-N-I-E-J-O-E-R-G, sorry, G-O-R-E-G-E. -E. I realized I did that. But um, make sure you put his full name in there. You'll find him. It'll be in the show notes. It'll be in the uh, description of all the, uh, you know, anywhere you watch this. But if you're driving down the road and you get to your, your location, you're wanting to connect with him. It is Jacob Ronnie George. I appreciate you being on the show. Uh, we're kind of out of time. I appreciate this. Uh, the last question, we always end with this. What can myself or the audience do to, to help you out, man, to help your business grow and help you succeed? Yeah. Two things. Can I, can I say two things? Absolutely. All right. So first one. Um, Listen, we've got this new push in sustainability, right? And we're taking the M&A angle. And, and I want owners and executives to think about where they are as an organization when it comes to sustainability and any future investment or M&A event that they want to pursue. And, and I'd love for you to reach out to me and, and we'd love to uh, work with you on a, on a consulting basis to figure out what needs to get done. Um, and, and that's the first thing. Uh, and secondly, um, I would love uh, any of your listeners, um, if they are considering exiting their business and uh, they feel they have some uh, unique technology or product or whatever it is, and um, they're thinking about exiting the business, I would appreciate a call and, and see how we can work together and, and figure out how your future looks a lot brighter, um, whether that be retired or part of another organization. So. 
Awesome. Thank you, George. Uh, I almost called you George. <laughs> Jacob, we were just talked about this earlier in the show that people call you by your last name, okay. and I glanced up and did it. Uh, thank you, Jacob. And uh, I really appreciate you being here. It's been a fun conversation. Thank you so much, Ron. I really appreciate it. And uh, I appreciate you allowing me to talk about some things that I'm passionate about. Awesome. I had a blast. Hang out for a second or two after the show. We'll sure. chat and we'll end the show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. That is the show today. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show, ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T I E pm.com and check out the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind.